Well, good morning again. I'm Bill, another one of the pastors here. And as we come to our scripture reading, we'll be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 21. If you are either new to Christianity or new to the church, this is the Sunday where 2,000 years ago, Sunday before Passover, Christ rode into Jerusalem. And so one of the records we have of that is in Matthew chapter 21. We'll read the first 17 verses. If you're reading on a pew Bible, it's on page 826. This is the Lord's word to us this morning. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. Well, they were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. And this is the word of our Lord. Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Lord, we um, come this morning with these words before us. We come praying and, and begging that you meet with us in them. We um, ask that what you would do here is something that's far more than what we could do or even what a Bible study is. <clears throat> but that in your word, you, Holy Spirit, would open our hearts and minds so that we would really receive the truth of your gospel. That it would change who we are, that it would make us new. That we'd meet with you in this word. If you would do that, all praise to you, Father. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So if you go to Rome, and you visit the church of San Pietro in Vincoli, which is terrible Italian, and that's as good as I got for you. It translates as St. Peter in Chains you would find one of the many pieces of Renaissance art, one of the many masterworks, Michelangelo's Moses. And as you would gaze at this for just a short while, you would very quickly notice something incredibly odd, which is Moses has horns. Two horns growing out of his head. 
And in fact, if you study Western art of the Christian variety, you'll find that from 1200 on, there's a huge tradition of portraying Moses with horns. And you think, why? What's going on here? Is this some sort of weird anti-Semitism or something? It's not that at all. It's the result of one great big misunderstanding. Here's how it happened. St. Jerome, who translated the Bible into Latin, when he got to Exodus 34, he really struggled with something. As Moses comes down the mountain after meeting with God, there's this Hebrew word that is Quran, and usually it translates horns. And so Jerome was trying to figure out what to do with this. Now, if you look in your own Bible, you'll see that it's translated that Moses' face was radiant. And it's very clearly a metaphorical use of the word in Hebrew. So it's the idea is almost like beaming, and beaming so much that light looks almost like horns coming out, hence radiant. And Jerome himself apparently understood and knew this. He had access to the Greek, he had other work. So he understood that this was not meaning that Moses had horns. But he still tried to be as faithful as he could, so he used the Latin word cornuta, which corresponds to horns. And everything's great until 1200 AD when people misunderstood what Jerome meant. So poor old Moses has been cursed to go through life in Western art looking like a fawn. What's the point? The point is misunderstandings have consequences. You know, this happens on the church staff somewhat regularly. Um, Siri doesn't speak Scottish very well. You're like, you want me to what, James? I'm not even sure that's legal. I don't know. Yeah. You see it in relationships, right? You're pretty sure that your wife said, hey, I need you to get bread and milk on the way home. And you get home and she's like, where are the kids? Oops. Or you're arguing with each other and you're pretty sure you know what your husband or wife is saying. You've actually misunderstood, but because you're pretty sure, you don't even listen. And you don't get to the root of what's going wrong here. The point's just simply, misunderstandings have consequences. And in Matthew 21, every major group of people in the passage misunderstands who Jesus is. And they misunderstand why he's come. And the point for us today is Matthew 21 tells us that because we misunderstand who he is, we fail to worship. Because we misunderstand who he is, we fail to worship. I'll suggest three things that we think about. One, who Jesus is. Two, why he came. And three, what it would take. Who he is, why he came, what it would take. So let's start. Who is Jesus in this passage? Well, one of the things you very quickly realize as you watch how people interact with Jesus is that we all have a tendency to misunderstand who he is, largely because we try to make him into our image. We try to make him into who we want him to be instead of who he really is. So, for example, I did my doctoral work downtown at the Catholic University of America. So as a Protestant kid at a Catholic school studying Hebrew, I have all my ecumenical bases covered. And while I'm down there, All my Roman Catholic friends keep talking about macho Jesus. Macho Jesus. And so finally I said, guys, who's macho Jesus? And they said, oh, have you never gone to the basilica next door to the university? And I said, no, I just come down here to do my work and I go home. They said, before you go to the metro today, just walk over to the basilica and you'll see what we mean. And by the way, the basilica is this really cool building. Down all the sides of it, they have these small side chapels. And you can see how each of the cultures that contributed has envisioned the Last Supper. And so you see the Guatemalan, the Salvadorian, the Chinese. And it's 
very good proof that we really do make Jesus into our own image. But that's not even what you notice at first. When you notice at first, you walk in the back door, and behind the asp is this 50 or 60 foot high Jesus. And this is the Jesus of Revelation, not the Jesus of the Gospels, because he is ripped. He is like Arnold on a steroid binge. He has lightning shooting out of his fingers, and he has come to kick you-know-what and take names. That's macho Jesus. Oh, and he's white, and he's blonde. Now, I hope you realize this. Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jew. He was not white, and he was most definitely not blonde. He would have been a short, squat little thing, probably kind of thin and scrawny. He would have had dark hair and dark skin. What had the artist done? Well, the artist had made Jesus into their own image. Well, into the image probably they wished they could be because I've never seen an artist like that. And then you realize we do it too. Um, did you see the CNN special that you almost couldn't get away from? They had every billboard and every metro bus and everything decoding Jesus, separating man and myth. It sounds great. Let's find out who he really was. But if you pay attention to what actually happened, if you look at what CNN produced, it actually didn't do that. Because what CNN did is it captured the spirit of our age. And the spirit of our age is all about the expose, all about popping the bubble. You know, when Bill Cosby turns out to be a moral wreck, when every leader or politician, it seems, seems to fail, the spirit of our age is to unmask things. And so what CNN did is they took an entirely tiny sliver out in the vast fringes. People are called mythicists. People who say there never was such a thing or such a person as Jesus of Nazareth. Keep in mind that even the non-Christian historians universally agree there truly was an historical person named Jesus. They take a fringe beyond that and they gave them the entire special. And it was really not an examination of who Jesus is. It didn't tell you anything about him. It told them about us. Because our society was trying to make Jesus into the spirit of our day. Something, to, a bubble to be popped. And that's actually what's happening in this passage here. Is everybody here is misunderstanding Jesus. They're failing to see who he really is. And in this passage, Jesus is showing us who he really is. So look what happens. There's one really good thing, by the way, about that CNN thing. It asked the question of verse 10. Who is this? Who is this? It's the question of the ages. And the people say back, don't you know this is the prophet, Jesus from Nazareth? Now that's a good start, but it's not enough. And Jesus is going out of his way to show us that he is more than just a prophet. Look what he does in the first five verses. He stage manages his entry into Jerusalem. He sends his disciples in and says, get a colt. Get the foal of a donkey. And I'm going to ride in on a donkey. Now, if you were an Israelite, if you were a Jew, it would be unmistakable what passage he was summoning. He's signaling to them exactly what the book of Matthew records. He's saying, I'm making the prophet Zechariah's prophecy, Zechariah 9.9, come true. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It would be unmissable that Jesus was signaling he was the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Now, why is that so important? Because who is it that's coming into Jerusalem in Zechariah? It's her king. He's not just a prophet, he's a king. And the people get it. 
They rejoice, they praise, they say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Praise to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, praise the Lord that the rightful king of Israel is now coming to assume his throne. He's not just a prophet, he's a king. Even more though, what's really amazing is baked in and hidden in verse 16. Look at verse 16. The scribes and the chief priests get kind of upset about all this. They say, hey Jesus, don't you realize what they're saying about you? Stop them. And he says, no, don't you realize what's written? From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. Now what's remarkable about that is if you look back at where it comes from. This is Psalm 8, verse 2. And if you go back and look at Psalm 8, it's really interesting to whom those words were supposed to be spoken. Let me read you verse 1 of Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. Who are these words supposed to be spoken to? These are words to be spoken and sung of God alone. And yet Jesus says, don't you realize what they're doing right now is spoken rightly of me. They wouldn't be able to miss the inference now. Jesus is saying, I deserve the praise that's due to God. Don't misunderstand who he is. And before we step on, it raises the question, how have you and I misunderstood who Jesus is? Now, have you treated him as a myth? Just something from the ancient past that's not real. Again, never mind that even the secular scholars won't do that. Have you just ignored him as a myth? He's more than that. Or have you said, well, he's just an historical footnote. Yeah, there was a real Jesus, but he died. He's been gone for 2,000 years. He says, no. He is prophet, he is king, and he is God. If you say, well, he was just a great rabbi, a Jewish teacher. Well, you know what? No great rabbi would have been willing to accept praise that was due to Yahweh. That just won't work. He's either who he said he was or he's a blasphemous egomaniac. Have you misunderstood who he is? Have we done it? Probably. Second thing goes further than that. We misunderstand why he came. It's endemic to this passage. People misunderstanding why he came. Um, I took Geology 201 in undergraduate. I remember only one thing from my entire undergraduate geology class. But I do remember the one thing the professor most wanted us to learn. He said, what you see on the surface is only that. It tells you nothing about what's going on when you dig down underneath. And largely what's happening in this passage is both major groups of people are seeing Jesus on the surface and they're not understanding why he really came. You know, to the scribes and the chief priests, he is just some rural rabbi who's built himself a big following and now he's rolling into the big town to try to make a splash. In other words, he's just another week's work to take care of. On the other hand, the people, they seem to be getting it. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David, the real king of Israel. But you know what? To them, he's just a revolutionary. They've been looking for the prophet who would come. They've been looking for the person who would upend the entire social order. They have been looking for the revolutionary. They've been looking for the guy who will just come. And then when Jesus rolls in, makes a mess in the temple, takes out the temple elite pokes his finger in the eye of the chief priest, they say, here's the guy who's going to overturn the system. This is the kind of king we want. And you know they don't really get who he is because a week later he'll be abandoned and forsaken and alone. Both of them are reading Jesus at the surface level because truth is he came for something much deeper. 
Look where he goes first. As he comes into Jerusalem as her king, the first place he stops is the temple. He goes to the place where he ought to be able to worship. And what he finds there is a messy, commercial, crass, banal, bizarre. And Jesus says in righteous anger, this is not what it's supposed to be. Why did he come? He came first and foremost because he wants to restore our worship. He comes because the worship of God is not as it ought to be. And on that, he's ready to fight about it. Now, if you understand the world back then, you would know the chief priests had mainly gotten their jobs by bribery, if not worse. The scribes and the people in control of the temple complex had put substantial sums of money into getting their positions. And pilgrims were big business. And so they were going to work hard to get their money back out of it. And Jesus comes in with one of the few times you see a real righteous wrath in his earthly ministry and says, this is not as it ought to be. He comes to restore our worship. And that leads directly to the third question. What would it take? What would it take to bring our worship back? And this is where it really gets interesting. Because Jesus is purposely invoking Zechariah chapter 9. Riding in on the colt. Now, if you go back and read it in the original book, in Zechariah, you'd realize the reason that Jesus or the king can roll in on a donkey. You know, a donkey is a, is a burden bearer of peace. You don't ride a bunch of donkeys into battle. They don't exactly strike fear into people's hearts. In Zechariah, the reason that the king can do that is because he's already vanquished all his enemies. He's already come in on the war horse and won. And so now he has peace. But Jesus skipped the whole war horse piece. He just came in on the donkey. Why? Because he's signaling to the people, I'm not the kind of king you think. Because he's come for something deeper and something bigger than the people would expect. Now my mom um, has this habit. I think it's cheating. When she gets a new book, she reads the last chapter first. She buys a great novel. She goes to the end, reads the last end. And I'm like, Mom, you can't do that. It's against the rules. I'm like, and by the way, doesn't it spoil the whole thing? And she says, no, I love it. Because once I've read the end, then I can go back to the beginning and I can see how the author's weaving everything together to get there. Now, I still think it's cheating in general. But it's really good advice about Matthew here. Because the simple fact is the punchline's not in the passage we read. The punchline's a week from now on Easter Sunday when you see that he's died and he's risen from the grave. And if you read the whole book of Matthew, you suddenly realize there's a third group of people in this passage. A group of people who do get it. They're called disciples. If you look backwards, if you were to go back to chapter 16, verse 14, you would find out that Peter actually answers the question, the first of our questions, who is Jesus? Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say I am? And they say, well, some this, some that, some that, some that. He says, but who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And it's immediately upon Peter saying that, that Jesus turns and starts teaching the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, he must be betrayed by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, he must die and be raised from the dead three days later. Twice more between then and the chapter we're looking at, in chapter 17, verse 22, and then again right before this in chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus emphasizes the disciples that he is going to Jerusalem to die. 
This passage will never make any sense to us unless we realize that he is resolutely on the road to his own death. Why? Because Jesus realizes that restoring us to the worship of God is something much bigger than flipping a few tables and kicking out a few money changers. Because Jesus knows that what ultimately keeps the worship of God from happening is what we call our sin. It's the simple fact that every one of us would rather not worship him. We'd rather do our own, thank you. If I have a choice between worshiping God, I'd rather be God. If we have a choice between submitting to the Lord's way of life or doing it our way, we'd rather do it our way. Jesus understood that there was a much more fundamental thing keeping our worship from happening than just a temple that was a bit of a marketplace. And so he came to die because he understood that that sin left only one answer. It was not enough to have a prophet. It was not enough for him to be a rabble-rouser or a revolutionary. It was only enough for him to be a redeemer. So he came to die. And when we get that, when we see who he is, that he is truly the Son of God, and we see why he came, that he came to die to redeem us, that moves us into worship. I was talking to one of this year's Capitol Fellows who became a believer a couple years ago. And he said, man, before I became a believer, the singing thing was just weird. He said, why do you do that? And he said, now it makes sense. Because a redemption received leaves us to worship. Now, Christian, I have a question for you. You may have known these things for 50, 60 years. You may be like, well, yeah, long ago I realized he was my redeemer, not just uh, my rabbi. What does this mean to you and what does it mean to me? Well, let me tell you about my week. Um, worship last Sunday was wonderful. Monday morning, up early, doing carpool at my daughter's school. Rushed over from carpool to teach the academic class for the fellows on Monday morning. Did a lunch with a congregant, then jumped right through four or five meetings with people. Got home about half an hour later than I was supposed to. Helped try to make it through bedtime. Then got back on email and did as much as I could until I just gave out. Um, by the way, those of you who I haven't answered, I'm sorry. That's the way it worked. Tuesday morning, up early. Tried to get in before my staff so I could get my act together about the week. Then we had worship planning meeting. We had senior leadership team meeting. Had lunch with the congregant and wanted to have theology discussion. Back to a bunch of meetings with my staff. It was Jill's birthday, so Caroline came over. She babysat. We went out to dinner. Got back Wednesday morning. I was up early because we had staff meeting. Then I had meetings through the morning, lunch, meetings through the afternoon. Got back, got the kids in bed. Got back on email. Still didn't catch up. Thursday morning, doing what I can. And I had to go to New York, so I was on the train the whole way. Get off the train in New York. Get the best thunderstorm I've seen this side of Georgia. Drenched like a rat teach a couple classes, get back on the train, get back home at about 1.30 a.m. And then Friday morning, which is supposed to be my off day, I'm like, I haven't done my taxes yet. And so I get all that done. Of course, that means Saturday I've got a sermon to prepare. Now, I say all that not to complain and not to make you feel bad because you know what? Your church staff, we work about the same. That's your lives too, Right? We don't work a lot less than y'all do. We also don't work a lot harder than y'all do. We're all living the same life here. And here's the thing. There was nothing bad in that week. There also wasn't a whole lot of worship in that week. I mean, it wasn't sex, drugs, and rock and roll or the like, but it also was just sort of going through it. And I don't know about you, but there's something deep in me that understands that 
a life of just getting through it for the rest of the week without any real sense of worship is something really different than the biblical picture of a life lived out in the worship of the Lord. And there's something in my soul that's just really dissatisfied with comfortable middle-class American Christianity just getting through it. And I suspect there is in yours too. What really helped me was when one of my friends pointed this out. He said, I think that passage works in reverse too. Now the passage is, we recognize who he is. He's God, he's the king, so we recognize that he's redeemed us. So that brings us to worship. But it also works the other way. It then means that we can look when we're worshiping. And if we're not worshiping, it probably means we haven't really realized who he came, why he came. Maybe we haven't even really realized who he is, at least in a practical, pragmatic sense. You know what? If worship is only a Sunday thing and then it's forgotten about for the rest of the week, it probably means he's only Lord of Sunday. And the biblical picture of a disciple is someone who worships through all of life. What would that look like? What might that be? Well, here's, here's a thought of what it means. It means that on Monday when you're getting the children to school, it's not just, oh, I've got to get this done and I've got to get them there. It's, these are the children you have given me, Lord. And the glory of getting to be part of your work and making them into everything they should be, into being the parent that you would have me be. This is actually not my cross. This is my joy. When you drag into that meeting at work, it's not, okay, here's another meeting I've got to do. It's like, Lord, you've given me a job. You have given me good work to do. And yes, it's hard. But this is what you've put before me in the day, and it's your day that you've given me to have. When you barely get out of bed and into the wheelchair, because at this stage of your body, that's all you can do. It's not, curse this wheelchair that keeps me confined. It's, praise God that there is a wheelchair and that I'm able to still function, and that I have this day before me. When you go to school and you have yet another assignment to do, it's not, oh, here's another test. It's, Lord, you've given me the chance to learn, and this is the test you put in front of me for this day. It's a day lived out fully before the Lord, with a recognition that it is his day, and it is his life, and it is his week. Now, try it this week. Get the devotional guide. Start putting each day of the week before the Lord instead of just Sunday. See what might happen. Give it a try. Let's pray. Lord, we do put these things before you. We, um, <clears throat> we confess that we're probably more proficient at making a normal life for ourselves than making a godly life for ourselves. And we repent of that. We pray that instead you would put before us a deep love of your word and a deep worship through every step of our day. That we would come in faith recognizing that Hosanna is not something of Sunday morning. Hosanna is something of a life lived before you. Take our meager efforts at this and our meager attempts to bring our lives before you and bless these little loaves and fishes to become something sanctifying and wonderful and great that your name would be praised every step of each day that we have. Would you do that in us, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.